time on Text Pros and Rock and Roll, we bring you the man who wrote the punk rock fashion playbook. He also started the first rock band to ever play CBGB and helped to establish New York's East Village as ground zero for all things punk. Today, I sit down with the one and only Richard Hell. Text Pros and Rock and Roll is the book and film club that rocks, literally. From band bios to artist memoirs and the occasional rock doc too, we are the only show of its kind. I'm Chris Kosach, and each week I'll bring you the stories and history of music with those who were there. We call our episodes tracks, and no two are the same. Some are from the road, some will originate at music festivals, and others are just good old-fashioned one-on-one conversation. All are intimate and honest. For decades, the name Richard Hell has been synonymous with music, as it should be. But what you might not know about this music innovator is that he is a wordsmith of the highest plane, from lyrics to criticism to poetry. Track 31, Richard Hell and the Birth of a Movement. Say thank you very much, because when I first came to you folks, I was looking to help and get the word out about Chronicle. But thanks to you, you suggested that I read your memoir from 2014 on Echo that talked about growing up and using all that in context. So I really want to thank you for that because you're 100% right. Well, you know, you know, the main reason for that really was that Chronicle alludes to a lot of things that you'd have to know about my past for the lines in the book to make sense. To, you know, to be fully resonant, you know, because uh, the, the, the book Chronicle is a pamphlet. It's a small, it's a very small book. It's a kind of informal reassessment of my memories of all my, all the processes I've been through in my whole life. So it's a lot easier to respond to if you know something about my life. And I'm so glad you suggested it was perfect. So I did expect to get some some shock value out of your story, but I did not expect that to come out of the gate with this bucolic Ozzy and Harriet upbringing. You really had this idyllic childhood in a way. Can you tell people a little bit about your childhood until unfortunately you lost your dad? Well, I I have, you know, pretty rosy memories of my childhood. I I also mostly remember, and I, I kind of thought I sort of express this in the book, just this dissatisfaction with being a kid. I didn't like being told what to do, you know, even that's something that's been consistent in my life. So when you're a kid, you really are subject to so much authority. So that part of it wasn't pleasant. And also being a child is a complicated. I didn't grow up in poverty or with a violent family or other things that people think of as being traumatic for kids. So in that sense, yeah, it was as ordinary suburban childhood. But those suburban childhoods are pretty rich with a whole range of feelings, too. But I mean, if people are thinking of, you know, some kind of classic concept of the punk rebel that grew up as an urchin panhandling on the street and getting beat up by his family. No, 
that wasn't me. And yeah, I mean, I do, as I said in the book, I feel like in a way I kind of peaked in the sixth grade as far as having some kind of level of, of serenity. It's all been like development of tensions and friction since then. As a teenager, you know, like so many boys, you know, you, you had a, a slightly wild side. What I find always really interesting is people like yourself who are intellectuals, who are into literature, who quit school. Do you think that that was just an innate part of uh, you? Or was that kind of a sign of the times because you came up when these guys like Ginsburg and Burroughs and those guys were very, very popular at the time? Or where did that come from, your, your interest in poetry? Well, uh, both of my parents were teachers. My father was a psychology professor, um, and uh, when he died, uh, he wasn't a psychologist who treated patients. He was a psychologist who did research uh, using rats and mazes and that kind of thing. Um, and then when he died, my mother had to figure out how she was going to support us, and she decided that that's what she would most like to do, be a teacher. And so she went back to school when I was seven and, and you know, it took six or eight years to get her master's and PhD to teach English. So my, my house was full of books. It was really natural for me to be interested in books. As for the, and, and I always liked writing. When I just mentioned that sixth grade where I felt like was, the, you know, my peak as a, as a decent human being. <laughs> uh, and my teacher that year allowed me, she should, you know, she, she came up with this idea and allowed me not to do any homework except to write because I never had any problem with the school lessons. So she said, why don't you just write stories for me? So it goes way back. I mean, in the book, the title of the book, I Dreamed I Was a Very Clean Tramp, the, my autobiography. And that comes from something I wrote when I was eight. Uh, so, it's, you know, I, I just always leaned that way. And as for the beach, you know, it was kind of the opposite of what you or what anybody might think because like I said I've kind of I kind of resist authority and the beats were sort of a secret handshake among all the teenagers in those years so I kind of just naturally rebelled against that uh in my reading I was drawn more to French poets of the 19th century like Baudelaire and Lautrimont and Rimbaud that's who I found to be inspired by um though it's not I, I was affected by Burroughs. Burroughs meant a lot to me. I, 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 a lot of his ideas were important to me, and I really admire his writing. But for the whole, um, you know, I'm excited. Uh, uh, the 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 wheat is waving and the sun is rising, and uh, uh, you know, my my spirit is blooming. Um, beatnik euphoria kind of stuff no i didn't uh I, I, I was darker got it um in your early late teens early 20s you and your buddy tom start this magazine right okay yeah so i read this portion in i dreamed i was a clean tramp several times and i think i got it but i was questioning in myself still did you reject a poem by Allen Ginsberg? Is that right? Uh, yeah, and, and you know, it's a, I'm kind of ashamed of it in retrospect because it was kind of a gesture. 
you know, I was like 17 or 18 and we had just started this literary magazine and um, there were some writers we wrote to. And because, as I said, I, I wasn't a, really a big fan of the Beats, um, uh, but nevertheless, we wrote to him. It's kind of, it's kind of creepy. Uh, and when we got the poem, we decided we didn't like it and we rejected it. He sent a kind of angry little postcard as he had every right to do. Um, it, I mean, it's even more kind of regrettable considering how my own kind of skills and even my own kind of literary values at that time were terrible. I was no, I, I I, I, my writing was bad. You know, it was like a, it was a, even though I left high school, I dropped out of high school. It was like a high school magazine. It was not any above that level at the beginning. By the time we did the last issue, it was, it was you know, more interesting. But uh, yeah, we were just the, you know, it is. It's like, it's a punk kind of thing to do. But uh, uh, yeah, but, but it's the kind of things that I don't like about punk. You know, I don't, I don't really, I, I, I believe in being honest, even if it's uncomfortable, but I don't believe in this punk behavior of just always trying to create chaos all the time and, um, and, and do, you know, be, be contrary, you know, oppose everything. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, I mean, when people talk to me about this, the example I usually use is, um, I remember when I was a kid going to movies in my hometown in Kentucky. You go downtown I, on a Saturday, take the bus from the suburbs downtown and go to a movie. Um, there would always be this little contingent of kids who would be salving and throwing popcorn and shit off. Sorry. Through <laughs> uh, the movie. And that, and I, I, I really resented that and opposed it. And to me, that's punk behavior, and, and a, in a way that a lot of people, um, and it's a kind of it's something kind of behavior that people associate with punk. But yeah, I, I don't, uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't agree with that. Got it. All right. So to you, punk is being contrarian, but not without merit. Um, and, and well, it's just trying to, it's not, it's like just not accepting the status quo and, uh, being honest about, um, being, doing, doing your best to be honest about what reality actually is, you know, uh, rather than just being comforting, like the way pop music is. I mean, pop music is just created to make people feel comfortable. Uh, it's just like soothing. It's like junk food, you know, it's like, uh, candy. Um, and so that's what we wanted to replace with talking about real life, life in the street. So you've always had this gift with words and we're right around the, the early seventies. You're starting to explore, uh, music with Tom who becomes Tom Verlaine. You become Richard Hell and are just about to start this punk band. But before we get into that, right around 74, I think it was the draft was happening. Nixon was in office. Um, And you tell this great story in the book about how you got out of the draft. And once again, it comes down to the words that you used. Would you mind sharing that story with everyone? It's a great story. (laughs) 
Well, okay. I, yeah, I, it's interesting that that's something that like ha, has strong uh, impact on you. But yeah, um, back then it was like uh, 1968 um, when I when I was 18, uh, and the Vietnam War was going on, and the draft was still in place, where everybody, every every male, when they turned 18 had to go down and get examined by the selective service, selective service, and in order to judge whether you were um, suitable for uh, the army. <clears throat> um, and, you know, the people were taking, it was like the height of the hippie movement, um, extreme turmoil all through society, the, the Vietnam War going on. Um, and a lot of people would try to, there were, took very, there were two or three popular ways to um, try to get rejected uh, by the Selective Service. Um, you could act crazy, you could, um, you could be gay, they, we weren't, they wouldn't accept gay people, um, or you could go to Canada. Um, leave the country. Um, or pay a lot of money and have a doctor write you a note for bone spurs. <laughs> yeah, I guess that, right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it goes with my kind of what I was saying there about honesty. Well, I, I would have, you know, not like I'm some kind of saint or perfect paragon of integrity or something, but. I just couldn't see faking something um, uh, because I didn't like what the government was doing, um, uh, like pretending to be something other than I was in order not to have the consequences. Um, but I sure did not want to be drafted. Um, and, you know, the conscientious objector is a possibility too. Um, uh, but I never even considered that really. Uh, maybe it was because I don't, I'm not sure. Maybe probably because I didn't want to have the alternative service either. I just want to be left, left alone. Um, so I had to try to figure out what I could do that would be true to my actual attitudes, um, but that would have the result of uh, exempting me from the draft. And so my approach was I was going to go down to the building where they had they signed where I was to, to appear um, for my physical and you would take a written test that has to do with your mental state and um, I, don't, I can't remember what all they were testing you for um, and I would simply behave spontaneously I would um, I would I would go through the process as if I weren't really aware of what it, you know what its implications were. I was just um, you know agreeing to to um, to appear when I was requested to by the government and see what happened and then uh, behave what felt. And behave naturally and um so I, I turned up down there i went through the physical which 
you know, wasn't uncomfortable. Um, I didn't mind it. Then I went to the room where we were taking a test and sitting there taking the test, I started feeling resentment build up. I thought the questions were really stupid and obnoxious. And um, I, 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 they, they offended me and I didn't want to participate. So I got up and left the room. Um, and I was just kind of wandering in the halls, uh, working my way to the exit when, and they were completely empty because everybody was, you know, being tested. Um, some, uh, officer, uh, and, you know, from the military saw me and said, what are you doing out here? And I said, um, I didn't like that test. I felt, I felt I was offended by it. Um, and he said, do you want to see a psychiatrist? And I said, okay. Um, and he sent me to a psychiatrist and it was really, that was really funny. That felt like uh, something out of, you know, Mel Brooks or something like that. <laughs> Cause the, uh, the shrink actually had a Viennese accent, classic, you know, uh, how are you feeling today? Uh, and he asked me what had happened and I just came clean with him. I said, I don't want to go into the army. Uh, I feel like, um, you know, I've always uh, resisted authority and um, I know that if I ended up in the army, I would spend all my time there in the brig. Uh, I don't think it would be you know, I, I just spoke to him frankly. I said, I don't think it would be good for the army or good for me um, to be, uh, you know, sent to basic training. Um, and he agreed. And he gave me, I can't remember what they call the classification where it was psychological. But I didn't act crazy or anything. I just told him what the situation was and said, and he, and it was pretty rational. And he was persuaded. So that's that's how I got out of the draft. Here's why I love that story. OK, I love that story. And I like the allegory of of uh, Joyland also, uh, because I think that they are perfect, uh, almost personifications, uh, not persona, just wrong word. Uh, they're perfect examples of who I think you are and who I think your audience thinks you are. In other words, you thought differently. You did something differently. You were fearless about it. You were honest about it. It bucked authority, but on your terms and in an, um, an honest, uh, uh, moral way, you really stuck by your guns. And well, I mean, thank you. That's nice for you to say that, but I also, you know, there's the other side of it, which is that, um, you know, being a uh, straight white male, I had a big, I had a, I had a big advantage. Uh, I mean, I don't think like a black kid could have gotten away with that. Um, uh, or, uh, yeah, I, I had, I had, I had advantages. Um, I mean, you know, it can, you know, it can, you can look at it the way you did and. Uh, and, but yeah, I, it, 
it was it was a luxury that I was able to do that, you know, because, you know, most of the army is made up of people who couldn't do that, made up of, um, you know, poor uh, working class um, uh, guys who, who just wouldn't have been allowed that leeway. This is around the time where we're, you know, you start Neon Boys and television. And I definitely want to talk about that. What was New York City like in the early 70s, in the in the beginnings of punk? This is the exciting stuff where we start talking. What was the climate in New York City? Well, yeah, as in in the 70s, the, the 70s were uh, a really tough time for New York. I mean, that was the period when uh, there was the headline in the Daily News of uh, Ford to New York drop dead, you know, because the country, the the city was bankrupt um, and it was seeking federal money and uh, the Republicans didn't want to give New York any money. Um, And yeah, what, what year is this? Is this now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's never been different. Yeah, um, and uh, so yeah, they, they garbage wouldn't be picked up. There was on I, 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 this apartment where you, uh, I'm talking to you from. You can see me. That uh, we're doing this. You have a video. Um, uh, I've lived here since 1974. This apartment. <coughs> um, but in 1974, um, I could depend on being burglarized every 18 months, wow. if not more often. There was a rape or a mugging on my block every six months. Um, this whole area was a no man's land. There were block after block that was just rubble um, uh, because it, it, landlords um, were getting so little, so it was such a bad area that landlords could make more money collecting insurance by burning their buildings down. Um, And so, yeah, it was, it was really ghetto. Um, And the whole Lower East Side where punk originated was more or less like that in the seventies. Now it's insane how, the, how it's turned around and it's the opposite. There's luxury apartments on every block. Um, and it's actually like, you can get the best food in the world. That's one thing I like about the gentrification is that there's all these restaurants with the spectacular food. I think probably right now, this neighborhood, that was the way I described it um, in the seventies, is and it probably in the world the area where you can be in walking distance of the most, uh, you, you know, sophisticated uh, restaurant. Anyway, but in the 70s, uh, yeah, it was opposite. And, but there was, you know, compensations. Um, one was that apartments were really plentiful and cheap. You know, they might get burglarized, but they didn't, didn't cost anything to live there. Um, and so were jobs um for you know if we're just talking about unskilled labor because uh, you know for me in that period um 
my the the way I the way I um, my way of life was that I would get a job and work for the two or three months that it took me to save up enough money to live for another two or three months without working, and then I would quit. Um, uh, and then I could, if you know, if, if I was lucky, if I had a if I had a sympathetic employer. Um, he'd agree to fire me instead and I could collect unemployment because uh, I mean, not to fire me, like it <laughs> lay me off. Like it yeah. couldn't be fired for, you know, for um, behavior or, you, you know, reason like that. But if you had to be laid off, you could collect unemployment. So, and the same thing worked with apartments. Um, I wouldn't worry about paying the rent if I was having a hard time and I, and I had enough money to live there if I didn't pay the rent because it would take, you know, the process of getting evicted took two or three months. And um, so you could stay there without paying the rent. And there were so many apartments available. You, you could just get another apartment right away. Um, so that's what life was like uh, for us. So there was a lot of free time um, uh, and, uh, so it did. It was an atmosphere in which that music arose. Was of um, of of this sort of combination of uh, freedom and lawlessness that was dangerous. You know. Yeah, you're part of the first rock band. You well, you're the first rock band that played the CBGBs. I'm curious about this. Who was the audience at that first show? Do you remember at all? Well, you know, between the guy who was sort of, uh, we called him our manager, but he was, he more just was our sort of sponsor. The Terry Ork was his name. Um, uh, he, we let, he let us use his loft to rehearse in, and he paid for our equipment. And he used whatever means he had to bring us to people's attention. And he was kind of well-connected. Um, he was like a guy who basically parked himself at Max's Kansas City every night. And um, he knew all the people in the sort of um, underground media uh, art uh, circles. Um, so when those first few gigs, there were all, there were always like, that was most of the audience. It was our friends and um, the people that Terry would invite in hopes that um, they'd help publicize us. Uh, but yeah, it was only 20 or 30 people. Um, but we also, I made posters. Uh, we would put up flyers around 11 by 17 that I would paste up and have run off. And then we'd go out on the streets and put them up. And they were pretty striking. If you were into rock and roll and you saw one of those posters, you'd be curious. And it's built really quickly. It's funny you should mention this because that allows me to kind of illustrate what the, what we were like back at the very beginning. Because there's been a video that just surfaced that's on YouTube that shows our band, television, doing a number within the first three months that we existed. There had never been any like visual record of that there are videos you can see on youtube of 
us rehearsing, but the sound is so terrible and, and we're more having fun than really trying to play well. If you Google... Um, I did yesterday. I Googled a couple of things and I'm wondering if I saw it. Does it have a lot of static? Yeah, 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 yeah. I it's from it. an old cable TV show. That's okay. us in 1974. It's the, it's, the first, it's the very first punk performance that's on record. People scratch their heads and they see television described as punk because it only had the qualities that you associate with punk for maybe five or six months because Tom wanted to go a different direction. I was basically sort of style foundation of the band, uh, how we behaved on stage, how we dressed on stage, uh, what our graphics looked like, that kind of thing was my department. I mean, what uh, I would be encouraging and pushing people to do this. And so for the first five or six months, that's what we were like. And then Tom started insisting that we go a much more conservative direction, change the, you know, people started dressing differently. Nobody was moved on stage anymore because he wouldn't have it. And he had all the power in the band because he was the main songwriter and played, you know, his glorious guitar, which, I mean, he's fantastic in this video. I mean, it was his best period too, as far as I'm concerned. The people who love television that recorded, I know what they're appreciating. They're, you know, his concept of what a record should sound like and his abilities on guitar are extraordinary for sure. But they were not what I wanted to do. I wanted this like euphoric, angry, at the same time, burst of uh, revelation from the band where you, where you were just blown over by the power uh, and excitement and energy. Um, and you can see that in that the uh, YouTube segment. It's only been up like for a week. But you had the swagger. You were kind of the front man. You were what everyone thinks of when they think of the look of punk. You really kind of originated the hair and the clothing and the fashion and all of that. And Malcolm McLaren happened to hang around. And then is it true? Can you go on record and say uh, that you were the first one to do that? And then coincidentally, a year or maybe not so coincidentally, a year or so later, we start seeing Johnny Lydon, Aka, Johnny Rotten and Sid Vicious wearing the same style. Would you say that you were the first? I don't I, I don't have to say it. Malcolm has said it. Let's jump straight to, to Chronicle. What What's the genesis story of Chronicle? You wrote your entire memoir slash autobiography in a book form. And now, as you say, Chronicle takes bits um, and references from your story. Why did you decide to come out with a, a, a jotter, a small pamphlet, as you called it? The publisher approached me and he had a series going uh, that was all the same format. He'd done two of them already. And I, 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 it was a guy I met and I knew something about and who I respected. I'd met him twice for a minute or two over the years, but he has this great operation going in Houston called F, the letter F, where he has a gallery and he publishes books and he, he has a whole little media complex of his own going, but very much in a sort of countercultural way. You know, it's, a, it's him... Um, carrying out his exciting ideas. Yeah, he asked me if I had anything that would be appropriate for uh, one of these books that are only fewer than 40 pages long. They're stapled, though they have a little cover. It's beautiful. They're, uh, yeah, they're very elegant. I love the way they look. And that's all Adam's doing. And so I had to think about what I might have that would work for him. The past three or four years have been intense for me. I had a major change in my 
romantic life. I got divorced. I mean, and, and that was kind of traumatic. It made me rethink everything in my life. But also hitting a certain age where you're conscious that there are not that many years left. And so your life has become something you can that has its own character. It's not really going to change because the end is near enough. So it's already what it is exists. And you can't help being aware of that and trying to assess for yourself what it is, what it has been. And so, yeah, I wrote a whole real autobiography like about 10 years ago. Yeah, it came, it was published in 2013. I finished it in 2011. So that was 10 years ago. And a lot had happened since then. And the past few years had just been, had been really quote, sort of thoughtful for me. And also kind of painful and a lot of inward looking. And so I just had this material that had, that I'd collected of kind of notes to myself and thoughts and jottings and observations and quotations over the past three or four years. And I thought, you know, I bet this could be arranged in such a way that you'd feel it, that it would be effective, that it would communicate something, even though all the parts of it are very distinct. And it has 88 little passages, and there's usually two or three. And they're the collection of sort of how things have been for me and this situation I've found myself in in recent years. The only reason I call it autobiography, that wouldn't have occurred to me. I mean, speaking of the little pamphlet as being autobiographical, like stating it that way, was because a friend of mine who's a really good writer called it that. I hadn't, that hadn't occurred to me to quite classify it that way, but it's true. It is, it's me looking inwards, but also noticing a lot of things. There's lots of notes on books I'm reading and uh, my, you know, my opinions of them, that sort of thing too. It's like, it's just like an active mind turning things around for itself, you know, like holding things up to the light and turning them around and considering them as they happen in the course of days and months. That's what the book is. It's like, um, 38 pages and 88 uh, little passages uh, that are sort of that sort of describe how things are feeling to me at this point. I've had only a couple of readings on this program. The last one was Willie Nelson. So I think <laughs> you are the perfect bookend <laughs> for that. Before we ask you to read a little something, what is next in this new world, 21st century, with your decades of, uh, of learning and ruminating on where things have come from? Uh, have you started to give thought into what some people are doing, some of the trends about the NFT? Would you ever NFT one of your... A concert posters, or have you thought about selling your catalog to these big uh, companies and just selling out? What are your thoughts <laughs> on that? <laughs> well, um, I've always been lackadaisical about what they call monetizing. You know, I mean, for instance, um, I have a website, but it's kind of like a ghost town. I basically... I, except for the one page where I talk about what's new, you know, where we put up, uh, you know, a new publication or, or just news of stuff related to me. 
it ha- basically hasn't changed for 12 years. <laughs> it's, like, um, it's, it's, like a, it's like a relic, um, a, a cobwebby uh, haunted house or something. But OK, what I'm getting at is at the beginning, when, I, uh, when, when we first made it, which was like 1999, uh, do you know the Wayback Machine on the web? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Of course. it's really funny. You can you can go there and you can see the first two years. And it's really funny to see. But then it hits like 2009 or something or even earlier and nothing is, and nothing changes anymore. And anyway, what I'm getting is at the very beginning, we sold T-shirts. I, you, there was a merch page, you know, and they would have a books of mine, records of mine, uh, some of those old posters that I had. Um, and at that time, it was really useful to me because, uh, you know, uh, I, I was pretty much living on my writing and my music royalties, and it was it could be a struggle. Uh, but it was helpful to be making this money from. Um, and but the the funny thing was the T-shirts were by far the biggest seller. The people people love T-shirts, and you know that's funny. That's the thing about the Ramones too. They basically survived on T-shirts for like ten years. Um, but uh, I can't even be bothered with that anymore. Uh, it would it's really easy to do. Um, so. I don't have anything against NFTs or making big deals for your catalog, though nobody's going to pay much for my catalog. Uh, you can probably get something. Um, I'm going to leave that to my heirs. They can do whatever they want with, with me and my name. Uh, but I'm just, I, I'd rather spend my time uh, otherwise. If I, if for instance, if I had like a business person who'd say, "Let me take care of it," and well, actually, it's funny. I do have a pair of Richard Hell sunglasses that are due to appear. <laughs> From a yeah, <laughs> um, you know Nick Zinner, the, the yeah yeah yeah. Of course, of course. Yeah, he he uh, uh, remixed my Destiny Street album for me right. with me um, a couple of years ago. Um, for for my the release Destiny Street complete, he had a friend who has a a sunglass operation called Sadie Specs, and the guy approached me and said, "We'd like to make glasses that look exactly like yours uh, from 1974." And I said, "Why not?" But I'm really detail oriented about it. That's part of the thing too. Is like I wouldn't want to put my name on something. It's the same for my books. I usually design them, even the ones from major publishers. Because I don't want to put my name on something unless I feel like it has a certain level of conscientiousness um, and quality to it. And this ain't your your first rodeo. You've done this before. You know what I mean? I mean, you had a magazine, for goodness sake. You've been an editor. You've been a critic. So it makes sense you want to have a hand in that. Sure. Right. So, you know, I've already rejected three or four. We're like tweaking to get get the exact right shape and stuff. But yeah, uh, I'm fine with that. If somebody comes to me and says, but I just I don't pursue it. I wouldn't do NFTs. I'm not going to look for buyers for my catalog uh, just because I, I don't have the time. I don't, I don't care enough about it. Yeah. I'm, I'm doing okay. It's funny. My royalties, people talk about how streaming has uh, decimated music income for musicians. Somehow for me, my royalties have been steadily increasing 
since like 2000. Even I haven't, you know, I haven't put anything else out. I only have two albums, uh, you know, about that have been releases, but a lot of it is from streaming. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, anyway, yeah. So I, I'm not like, I don't feel superior to people like looking for ways to, um, uh, because it's hard being an artist, being a freelance worker in any, in any area. And, uh, yeah, if people want to do that stuff, I'm not condemning them, but yeah, I'm not inclined to do it. And while Richard Hill continues to question the establishment and trends, he has words of wisdom as compiled in the new publication Chronicle, available, as Richard mentioned, on F. That's the letter F, as in, well, you know. And before we close for today, we're treated to a reading from Chronicle, Richard's new collection of jottings. Chronicle is the perfect gift for the intellectual punk, those who think so far outside the box that they question whether or not it was ever a box at all. Chronicle is a distinguished looking pamphlet, really very minimal. And if I say so myself, it's a perfect gift for your favorite punk. It's available at a very, very select brick and mortar stores, including Printed Matter in New York, Skyline Books in Los Angeles, Fungus, Menel, Karma, and more. A list of which are in our show notes for this episode, wherever you found this podcast. And with no further ado, here he is, the architect of punk himself, Richard Hell, in his own words from Chronicle. Number one, snow is falling in huge clumps and gravity seems depressing. Two, engrave on tombstone, out of control. I always was glad to have that thought. I like, I like that. I like because I feel like I resent all controls, and but life is about being controlled. I mean, you can't even control yourself. You're being controlled, <laughs> um, uh, and so that's what I would like on my tombstone: out of control. Uh, Three, people are different from each other and can't communicate. Four, whenever I learn that someone has read something by me, I realize I haven't written what I thought I had. Five, what is the difference between eyes opened and eyes closed? Six, poetry is what reminds you what it's like to live. Seven, The thing concealed by everything mysterious is one's description of it. Eight, hounded by the desire to be realistic. Nine, I decided to let myself become this thing of rock and roll. Ten, seeing something through a window is unlike being on the other side of the window. Eleven, This is the one longer one on this page. The phenomena and ideas that are the most fascinating are, like Gödel's theorem, those that point to the realization that one can't understand the world because one is a part of it, the world. And so trying to encompass results only in noise, like feedback, like infinite mirroring, a thing looking at itself which is impossible and only creates those jarring alarms. 
I resist authority. To live in serenity, one has to accept one's subordination, give up trying to understand or control. This theme is everywhere. My wish to be God, which is hopeless. All damned religions and spiritual programs are about accepting one's subservience, about humility before incomprehensible powers over oneself. So that's page one. Thank you very much, Richard. That was fantastic. My guest has been music a tour. I think that's a perfect description. Richard Hell. His booklet of mutterings in 88 parts chronicle is described by his publisher as fun, lyrical, perceptive, and sobering. Purchase your own copy at a very select list of bookstores by visiting fmagazine.info. Be sure to read Richard's autobiography, I Dreamed I Was a Very Clean Tramp, on Echo Books. Once again, thank you to Richard Hale for joining me today, as well as Adam at F. If you'd like to listen again to my interview with Richard, you can do so on the Text Pros Rock and Roll podcast. You'll find that wherever you get podcasts. And while you're there, please be sure to subscribe. On behalf of GoTo Productions and producer Shar, I'm Chris Kostach. I'm leaving you now with a classic from Richard Hell and the Voidoids. This is Blank Generation. Blank Generation.